Okay, um, we as human beings, which means we as Christians, um, we, we have a, a common mistake that we make all the time. And a common mistake, uh, which means it's pretty much true of all of us, is that we're really, really good at focusing on the wrong thing. Um, our tendency as humans and as Christians is to really get caught up in the what, okay? To really fixate on what. What is going on? What's the situation? What should I do today, tomorrow? What should I have done yesterday? What should I be about in the days to come? What is God up to? What are these candidates talking about? You know, what did she say about me? We as human beings are really, really what-driven and what-focused. And, and I want you to know that the what matters. You know, what we do with our lives, it really does matter. But the thing is, the what is not everything. The what by itself is not enough. Who we are is a really big deal as we go out to do. How we do things is also just as important. You know, I have this little saying, and I use it too often, so if you've heard it, uh, you're not the only one. But I say this all the time, but it's really good, and the saying goes like this. Doing the right thing is not the only thing. How we do what we do really matters. Because if we do the right thing the wrong way, you know what the right thing just turned into? It just turned into the wrong thing, okay? Are you confused? Well, Richard Baxter said it better than me in the 1600s. Richard Baxter put it this way. He said, be very careful not to undo with your lives what you speak with your lips. And I think that's just a really good way of saying that the who, who we are, how we do it, and what we do really matters. These three pronouns really need to come into how we walk, how we share Jesus, you know, how we live for him in the world. Who do, and, and by the way, speaking of Jesus, do we not see this beautifully in the life of Jesus? You know, you start with Jesus' what, okay? What Jesus does in the Gospels, it's incredible. Anybody want to argue that? It's powerful. It's amazing. It's mind-blowing. What Jesus does is just, it's astounding. But guys, it's actually who Jesus is and how he is when he comes to us that makes all the difference. It's not just the miracles alone, but it's that when Jesus shows up, what, what do we encounter from him? Love, kindness, joy, acceptance, forgiveness, grace. Jesus brings all of this. And who he is and how he is with us, it impacts us. It changes us. It gets us, uh, uh, us up off the floor, out of the gutter. It gets us to turn and walk with him. Who and how Jesus is, is gigantic. But we don't just see it with Jesus. We see it all over the Bible. Anytime God shows up through anybody else, these three things all come together. And today's passage in Acts chapter 13 is a great example of this, okay? Let me start with the end of 12, just the last verse. And we're going to pick up with, with, uh, with uh, something here, and then we'll run into chapter 13 with it. Acts 12, 25. It says, when Barnabas and Saul finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned taking John Mark with them. Okay, here's the deal. What Saul and Barnabas have just been doing is really, really important, okay? So this what is a big deal. They've been taking famine relief money to the church in Jerusalem. 
You remember a couple of weeks ago, Agabus prophesied that there would be a famine? Well, there was. And Jerusalem was hit by it. And everyone there, they're destitute, they're struggling. And so these folks, okay, this church center, and I'll tell you where it is in a minute, they send relief money over uh, through Saul and through Barnabas. It's a really important what? But it's who these two guys are, and it's how they do ministry, how they love for Jesus, that's just as critical to the success of their mission. Barnabas, let's start with him. Okay, Barnabas's name means son of encouragement, all right? It's a good name, not a bad thing to be called. And the thing with Barnabas is that the name really fits the man. Now, Luke describes Barnabas for us a little bit in Acts chapter 11, verses uh, 23 and 24, and he starts out with a ringing endorsement. Now, this sounds pretty plain, okay? This is a very simple phrase, but he says this about Barnabas. He starts off saying, Barnabas was a good man. Now, I want you to think about that. That is a phrase that you do not you, you, you do not use that phrase lightly. If I look at Brian and go, I'm telling you, this guy Brian, he's a good man. That's a ringing endorsement. That's saying something. But here's the question, what is it that makes Barnabas a good man, okay? Is Luke just in a good mood? You know, is he kind of, you know, just, uh, well, let, me, let me just say something nice here. Absolutely not. Luke describes him and he says, first of all, Barnabas was a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what that means in Scripture. Full of the Holy Spirit means here is a man that's full of joy. You ever run into anybody who's full of joy? Oh, that's a day changer right there. This man is full of joy, but not only joy, he's full of the wisdom of God. Man, um, the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians, you know, I don't know how you memorize it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I don't care how you memorize it. All that fruit is hanging off the limbs of this man. And I know what some of y'all are thinking, because I'm thinking it right now. I wish I knew Barnabas. I wish I was friends with Barnabas. I love people like this man in my life. Upbeat, full of faith, looking to God. So, so, so he's, and, and by the way, that's another thing about Barnabas is he is a man, Luke says, that is full of faith. You know what that means? It means Barnabas is a guy No matter what the situation is, the concern, the crisis, Barnabas' response, because he's full of faith, is his response is, you know what, God's got this. Whatever this is, I promise you God's got it. So let's look to him. Let's pray to him. Let's walk with him right in the middle of this. This is who Barnabas is. Pretty good guy, right? Well, his traveling companion, this guy named Saul, is not too shabby either, okay? You remember Saul early on in Acts, he starts off as a man who is trapped in deep, dark, evil sin. You know, we compared him to Idi Amin, to Adolf Hitler because of the genocide. He's trying to wipe out a race of people. He's a terrible guy in the beginning, but he personally meets Jesus. Jesus rescues this man. He saves him, turns his darkness, you know, into light, his mourning into dancing. So now here is Saul in Acts chapter 13. He is a man that is lit up with passion for God. He is just lit up with love for God. And because of that, he's also filled with compassion for other people. And we've said before that compassion is just love in action. So Saul is not a guy who can sit back and, you know, good Samaritan, he's like the first two priests. He, he runs to people with the good news and the love of Jesus. That's who these two guys are. And they are a pretty dynamic duo for Jesus here in, in Acts chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13. Buffy, 
You know what, if we're looking for people for short-term mission, I'm telling you, we want them to look like this. This is who these guys are. So they've gone to Jerusalem and they delivered this, this relief money and again, it's not just what they've done, it is who they are as they go to Jerusalem. It's how they love and, and how they shine for Jesus. It's how they deliver those goods that matters most. Well, now they're returning to Antioch in Acts chapter 13. And um, this is interesting because does anybody know where Antioch is? It's an ancient city. Anybody know where Antioch is located? Turkey, back then probably given the geography, we're actually talking Syria, okay? Syria, okay? This is the same Syria slash Turkey region that's in the news for refugees. It's the same Turkey slash Syria that, you know, we hear all these connections to radical Islam. Back then though, this was a center for the church. All that persecution that we read about earlier has driven Christians to this area and now they've set up a temporary headquarters. Antioch was a place where the church of Jesus Christ was thriving at one point. And I'll tell you this, ever since I saw this and saw it again, my prayer all week long has been, God, give Assyria back. Lord, return Antioch, the ancient ruin. Lord, return it to the church of Jesus Christ, redeem it for the kingdom. All right, so anyway, they do this. And now let's look at the church that they return to in Antioch, and let's take a look at who and how these guys do things. Acts 13, one through four. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, it's Herod uh, Antipas, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them went on their way by the Holy Spirit, okay? So first things first here, let's look at the leadership of the church. It's not just a group of teachers and preachers. This, this here, in this, the, the, what we read about are prophets and teachers. We read about a beautiful blend in leadership of the prophetic and those who teach. So the idea here is by the way this church is, is, is made up, they both instruct the church and they prophesy to the church, okay? They do a lot of biblical instruction, raising the church up to maturity in Christ, but then they prophesy to the church. This is what God would have us do. This is the next stage of the journey. And, and, and so we see this just here, this pure dynamite, discernment, prophecy, and instruction. And then you look at the leadership and it's a very interesting mix of people. You know, you've got Barnabas, all right, you've got the son of encouragement, right? He's on the leadership team. Well, you also have Simeon. Now, Simeon is interesting because he is a black African, but more than that, he is also probably the very same Simeon who carried the cross of Jesus Christ. So, folks, this is a man of, of real substance. We also have Lucius of Cyrene. Now, some people say this is the same Luke uh, that writes in the New Testament, that's probably not accurate. Uh, we're not exactly sure who he is, but we're gonna see him in action in a minute. We have Manan, who is, again, a guy who grew up with Herod, okay? One of the Herods, Herod Antipas. 
So he grew up amongst all that darkness, but somehow, somewhere in his life, he's met Jesus Christ, and he is whole hog in the kingdom of God, okay? He is on the front lines in leadership. And then finally, we have Saul, who, who we're getting to know more and more about every day. And how they do ministry here together in this moment is absolutely fantastic. Now, the idea is that they are at the crossroads, okay? The church, all the way up to Acts chapter 12, it's been crystal clear what their assignment is, what they're supposed to be doing, go here, go there. Well, in Acts chapter 13, for the first time, the church is really at the crossroads. They don't know what comes next. But look at what they do. They resist the temptation to go ahead and manufacture the next step themselves. Well, Jesus has led us so far, so I guess we take it from here. So let's create these programs that, you know, represent him well, or, you know, let's come up with our own ministry plan. In these moments, they don't do that. Instead, they call the church together, and together they ask God the question, what comes next? Lord, what would you have us do as a church? And after asking the question, they simply enter into worship, right? What we've just been doing. They enter into a time of praise and worship and fasting, meaning they are praying with all they have, deep prayer, just seeking God. And after a little while, the Holy Spirit says to one of them, set aside Barnabas and Saul for a specific assignment I have for them. Now, this is interesting in Scripture because our sentences rub, run together, so we think one thing happens and then boom, you know, just, oh, it's happening moment by moment. But the church, believe it or not, for, for a little bit, they do not act on what the Holy Spirit has spoken to that one person. It says, after a season of fasting and praying, so what they do as leadership as a church is they go, okay, the Holy Spirit has spoken through somebody. But if the Holy Spirit is speaking, he ought to confirm it to all of us. We want to be in agreement. And so they seek the Lord, they fast and they pray, knowing that God will show them if, if this is truly a word from him. And again, it's just this great balance, such good balance in the first church, prophetic and teaching. But here, there's just this balance of God speaking to the people, God, God using leadership and the church together. And together they seek, they hear, they test, they confirm, they agree, and they believe that the Holy Spirit will talk to all of them about them. That's who they are as a church. That's how they did things. And again, it's a powerful way to do ministry. And it really determines what comes next. So they seek God in prayer. And they get the mind of God together. This was a word from God and then in that moment, they lay their hands on Saul and Barnabas, and Luke says they apolloo them. Now, that means, that means they released them with a blessing. They pray for them, they release them, and then we have verse 4, and verse 4 is critical. It says, the two of them, Saul and Barnabas, were sent or went on their way by the Holy Spirit. And that is a big, big, big deal. Why is it a big deal? Because too often we go out in our own strength. Too often we go out with our own plan. But folks, how we are supposed to go out as the church of Jesus Christ, how we're supposed to go out is being led by the Holy Spirit. And who we are to be as we go out is full of the Spirit, 
full of the love of God, touched and cleansed by God. And y'all, when we go out like that, people encounter the living God when they encounter us. You know, they get hit with the goodness of God when they run into you and me. They taste and they see that the Lord is good when the who, the what, and the how are all in line. And I'll tell you this, if necessary, they will also encounter the power of God. The power of God to break through walls in their life, the, the power to break them of sin. So guess what happens next? Well, I'll read it to you. Verse 6. Uh, Saul and Barnabas traveled from town to town across the entire island until they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus or Elimus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who is an intelligent man. Now, Paul, or, 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 well, still stick with Saul. Saul and Barnabas start off sailing for Cyprus. Now, why in the world do they sail to Cyprus, okay? It's a very easy answer, okay? I've already given you the answer. The reason they go to Cyprus is they are being led by the Holy Spirit, right? They go out with him. Saul starts off by preaching in Jewish synagogues. Now, why does Saul do that? It's the same answer as before. He's led by the Holy Spirit, but we also know that is the rhythm of Saul's life and ministry. Romans 1.16, he says, look, I go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But again, it's all, all under just being led. And so far, everything's going pretty normally, you know, pretty well. It's a pretty usual encounter. But then they meet a man. They meet a man named Bar-Jesus, okay, or Elimus. Now, Bar-Jesus' name means the son of salvation. Okay, that, that's pretty encouraging to run into a guy whose name means the son of salvation. He's also attached to the governor of Cyprus, so you're talking about influence, you know. If, if the governor comes on board, boy, the, you know, the, I mean, the influence of Christ will really spread. That's good. That's encouraging. But then we discover that Bar-Jesus is a Jewish sorcerer, and that is not encouraging at all, right? That's creepy. That's weird. It's downright demonic. But notice in this moment what Saul and Barnabas don't do. They don't rebuke the guy. They don't challenge him. They don't confront him. Why? Because in this moment, they are not being led by the Holy Spirit to do that. For now, they have another assignment, and it's clear. They have an invitation from Sergio Paul, uh, Sergius Paulus. See, if I make him Sergio, he sounds like an Italian model. Sergius Paulus, okay? Real clear about that. I've been saying Sergio all week. So, but, but the governor has invited them to come and share about Christ. And I want you to understand this. Uh, Sergius Paulus is not a guy who's been reading the Old Testament. He's not a guy who's heard about Jesus and he's really anxious to discover what comes next. He is not what we would call a God-fear. Cyprus during those days was a hotbed of spiritualism, okay? I mean, the occult is prevalent. They're worshiping anything and everything. The worship of Venus is huge in Cyprus during these days. So for Sergius... His, his whole attitude is, well, you know what? I'm into spiritual things. I'm spiritually open. Here are a couple of guys. They got something new to share. So why don't I hear the latest have them in? So, so <clears throat> Saul and Barnabas go in and they begin sharing Christ. And suddenly, Bar-Jesus, the attendant to Sergius Paulus, realizes he's in trouble. He realizes 
that these guys are going in a completely different spiritual direction toward light and goodness and the God of heaven than he's going. He's threatened. And so you know what he does? Who's seen uh, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers? All right, he pulls the worm tongue, all right? For those of you who haven't seen the movie, there, there's this character named Worm Tongue in The Two Towers, and, and he's the attendant to the king, and the, and the whole movie, he whispers in the king's ear just poison. He's just poisoning the king. That's exactly what Bar-Jesus does in this moment. He says to him, look, don't listen to these guys. These two dudes are full of it. Their God's a joke. None of this stuff is true. Don't believe a word that they say. And now, Paul, in verse 9, in this moment, filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, he confronts Bar-Jesus. He says, Bar-Jesus, you are no son of salvation. You're a child of the devil. You have nothing to do with spiritual conversion. All you're into is spiritual perversion. You're spreading spiritual darkness. You're trying to lead Sergius Paulus into spiritual blindness. And because of that, the Lord now in this moment is going to make you physically blind for a while. And think about who's telling him this, okay? Has Paul ever been there and done that? Yes, he has. So it's, hey, I've been there, I've done that, I've got the t-shirt, I've got the membership card, I know all about this. God's going to do it right now to you. And boom, Elimus is blind. And he has to be led away by the hand. And Sergius Paulus, who has heard, I guarantee you, an amazing message from Saul and Barnabas about Jesus. The life, the death, the resurrection, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he's got a plan for our lives. He's heard all of that, but now he's just watched Jesus work. Man, he is in. He is in. He accepts Jesus Christ right there on the spot. And it's just a beautiful experience of two men that not only go and, you know, they've got their scripture laid out, they've got their ministry plan, but they really go and who they are is full of the Spirit and how they are is loving. And even in that confrontation, the love of God has taken center stage. Who, uh, who they are, how they do things and what they do, it is a beautiful testament and a calling to how we, the church of Jesus Christ, need to do ministry, live our lives. I'll tell you something else that's really great about Acts 13. This is also the beginning of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Do you remember the command? First go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Well, this is the first time the church has started to go out to the ends of the earth. And just look how they do it. And so for you and I today, well, where are we? Okay, where are we physically? Believe it or not, we live at the ends of the earth. You know, biblically speaking, geographically, we're at the ends of the earth as his children, as his ambassadors, as Christians in, in, in a dark place. And you know that we have the same, the same marching orders that Saul and Barnabas and the first church had. We have got permission from God to share Jesus Christ everywhere. But more than that, we have a commission to share Jesus Christ with everyone, everyone. So we know what to do. But folks, again, it's not just a matter of what we do for God. It's who we are. Who are we? Who are you? Who am I in this moment? It's how we share Jesus Christ. 
with other people that really matters as the church. So we first, ourselves, we first need to be cleansed. We need to be healed. We need to be filled. And y'all, when that happens, when that happens, we're ready. We are ready to go to the ends of the earth. We go carrying not only a message. When that happens, we carry his presence. Oh, we come in anointed. We come in shining. And folks, that's the whole point of everything we're talking about today is that you and I never graduate from repentance. You know, we never rise above those we minister to. Religion should never put us on a high and lofty seat. We are always people tasting the sweetness of God. We're always people being freshly forgiven. And so this morning, Neil's going to come up in just a second and lead us to communion. And um, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Inside, right now, who are you? Who are you today? Who am I today? How are we doing on the inside? When we step out to make Jesus Christ known and live our lives, is what we are bringing to people the overflow of what's in here? Eric prayed that this morning. I don't know if Eric's in the room. I'll give him credit for that. Because, folks, it's always the overflow. It's always the overflow of his love. It's always the overflow of his spirit coming from us that makes the difference. So how are you doing today? Are you bound up inside? Am I? Are we bound up? Are we dry inside? Are we hard inside? Do words like anger and fear best describe us today? Are we just real religious people? Do we find ourselves sometimes feeling kind of robotic, spiritually speaking? Well, if the answer to that is yes, and it's kind of got you going, oh, you don't have to stay that way. During communion today, would you take a moment to just repent of all that? God, forgive me of all that stuff. As we take communion, you get a little space and a little bit of time. Would you use that time this morning to just open up your heart to God and say, Lord, meet me right here today on the inside? Would you let God today clear away some of the clutter break down some of that stuff that's, and remove some of that stuff that's just in the way. Today, would you receive forgiveness and grace? God is all about forgiveness and grace. You have not come to the end of God's forgiveness and grace in your life. I trust, trust me with that. And today, would you let God fill you fresh and new with his Holy Spirit? As we take communion, would you just let the Holy Spirit breathe on you and fill you up? I tell you, we do all that today and we go out of here. We are ready. We are ready to go to the ends of the earth, go next door, everywhere we go, salt and light, everywhere we go, sweetness and goodness. And you know when it says in Scripture that all of creation is waiting for the sons and daughters of God to appear, that's what it's talking about. It's waiting for us to come like Jesus. And you see how people do when Jesus shows up. Everything changes. May that be us in Jesus' name.